Thanks for listening to the Frontiers podcast. If you have a moment before we start, please rate and follow this podcast. It makes a huge difference. The more of you that do this, the more people get to listen. And the more people that get to listen, the bigger platform I'm building for academics to share their research. Thanks so much. Hi there. You're listening to Frontiers, the podcast that explores cutting-edge research from the world's best scientists. I'm Ian Hallett, and in each episode, I interview professors, doctors, and research scientists who are leading authorities in technology, economics, business, politics, the environment, and sociology, so we can learn about the scientific breakthroughs that will redefine our world. Today, I'm delighted to share my conversation with Professor Thorsten Voost, a professor for smart manufacturing at West Virginia University. His research focuses on smart manufacturing, artificial intelligence, industry 4.0, and digital supply networks. He's globally recognized as one of the 20 most influential professors in smart manufacturing. His work has been featured by Forbes, Industry Week, World Economic Forum, in addition to the premier academic outlets in his field. So please now enjoy my conversation with Professor Thorsten Boost. Professor Boost, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Can we start by getting our definitions right so everybody's on the same playing field? What exactly is smart manufacturing? <laughs> That's an excellent question. It should be easy to answer, but uh, I fear it's not. So, Because there's a couple of different definitions out there. So I will share mine. Others might disagree to some extent, but um, but I, I will share mine. So in, in my view, smart manufacturing really marries technology, data, and human ingenuity. And the later part of human ingenuity, I think, is really crucial and is often an oversight in many of the more technical definitions that are, that are swirling around. And now when you mix in Industry 4.0 in the mix, which is always like kind of like, a, yeah, uh, used in, in, in exchange for smart manufacturing, I have a view that smart manufacturing, advanced manufacturing um, are kind of like subcategories under this big Industry 4.0 umbrella where smart manufacturing looks more on the data side, the analytics side, the getting insights out of, of a process side of things, while advanced manufacturing looks more on the, you know, the physical aspect of manufacturing that is an essential part of it. So they, of course, are very, very strongly connected, and I see them as uh, two sides of the same medallion, so to speak. Okay, so let, let's go up a level then to, the, to Industry 4.0, so the fourth industrial revolution. Can you describe where that idea came from um, what it means and what are the kind of the key facets of it. And then we can go deeper into the different elements of smart manufacturing later on. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so Industry 4.0 is a, a term that was born in, in Davos, I believe, in a, in a speech from a, a famous politician. Um, and and it basically describes the, the cyber-physical production system where people, machines, data are all now interconnected and exchanging data and, and allow all this... this uh, belts of, of new insights that we that we are now so fond of and we're still exploring so to speak. As there is a 4.0 behind it, I don't know where the 0.0 came from. I think the web 2.0, because there's never a 4.1 or 4.3. Um, but when we look at the first industrial revolution, that is basically the the only real revolution, I would say, when you think of, you know, army and bloodshed and, and burning down factories, right? Um, and that uh, emerged in the in Eastern Europe. Well, Middle Europe, basically, uh, back in the days when the first automated um, uh, looms, the, the power looms came came about, uh, steam generation, you know, automation where physical labor was put out of out of work, and out of work back in the day means no food on the table, right? Because there was no social net and so on. 
So um, back then, the, the folks that were put out of uh, out of work uh, burned down the factory, and they had to send the army to to instill peace again. Um, what we can learn from there is a is a very important lesson, I believe. Uh, first of all, the social aspect is always a part of manufacturing, so we can never like neglect the human factor there. Um, but on the other side, the fears did not become true of of the workers that they are out of jobs and can't feed their families. Overall, since the first industrial revolution, like a few hundred years back, um, the society prospered and and people have much more, you know means and and uh, much better lives and then back in in the in the early days right so uh, the same fear came up with industry 4.0 when we think of robotics and automation ai now um that people fear will put them out of a job um historically all these revolutions the first second third they all of course led to a change in tasks but overall they they um, helped society to prosper more when you think of the second industrial revolution um, mass production. Henry Ford is often credible with it, but there were um, examples before that. Um, the same thing, right? They they allowed to really produce cars in a in a fashion that regular Joe can have a car. Before it was a luxury item, where the we couldn't produce um, the amount of cars needed for it. Uh, and then the third industrial revolution, which is just like fifty years back, probably like 1970, 80, uh, where computers were introduced to the shop floor again, automation, robotics, but but the connectivity piece was missing. So um, that's why the the fourth industrial revolution now is um, is focusing on that that type of physical interaction. And now we're already talking about Industry 5.0, right? Bringing the human element back. I'm on the fence about that because, in my view, it was always part of Industry 4.0. But when the European Commission decides to fund certain projects with that name, then the name is established. Seems a bit quick to have the fifth revolution so soon after the fourth. <laughs> Maybe four point one would be a good use of that, you know, break convention period, right? <laughs> so the, the the idea of smart manufacturing. So let's go back to the original the original question. Could you just? It was very helpful to have the kind of the the historical context behind Industry four point Can you just give us a little bit of the historical context behind smart mar- manufacturing? Where where the idea kind of started how it's developed over over time i'm interested in how new this idea is uh, and 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 whether or not it's it's accelerating as a result of the acceleration in technology capability that we're all seeing at the moment um again very good question and i i will try to answer to the best of my ability um my understanding is that smart manufacturing was kind of coined more in the u.s uh like base uh or before I moved to the U.S., <laughs> so I'm from Europe originally, from Germany, as my accent that name probably gives away. Um, <clears throat> nevertheless, there was a, a concept called uh, intelligent manufacturing, right? The IMS, Intelligent Manufacturing Systems, is a is an old, pretty big um, conglomerate of, uh, of international researchers and, and industry. I believe that was from the early 90s, right? Uh, I think Japan was the driving force behind it, but then there was IMS that funded projects across continents. Um, and there's actually also a journal of intelligent manufacturing, um, that is, uh, that is around for a long time. This John, uh, uh, Kuziak, Professor Kuziak from Iowa is his editor in chief. And he kind of like is, um, to my understanding, also kind of like behind smart manufacturing and the, the notion how we understand it today. Because, uh, and that is, probably like maybe 10, 10, 15 years uh, old, I would say, uh, when it really became became dominant. 
Um, before it was also around, it was not a, a brand new term because everybody tries to make everything smart, right? Since you have sensors and, and compute. Um, but before it was more dominant, I think, in the processing industry, like chemical engineering. And for example, SESME, the Smart Manufacturing Institute, um, and, uh, and, um, uh, uh, Jim Davis, who, who is kind of like the, the founding father of that institute. He's, he's from chemical engineering. So I think that is the origin of, of smart manufacturing because chemical engineering and process engineering had more access to data and the, the, you know, the closed loop control and so on that we, we are just now kind of, um, incorporating in the, in the more, uh, traditional manufacturing industry, um, where we, we produce metal parts and cars and so on. And then from a practical business person's perspective, if they are thinking about advancing their manufacturing site or they're trying to challenge their suppliers that are manufacturing items for them to become faster, develop more efficiency, get it, get the unit cost down, which I'm assuming are all the kind of some of the benefits of doing a smart manufacturing uh, agenda. How do they actually go about it? So what, what are the kind of key mechanisms, the key technologies that they're deploying to enable a manufacturing site to be considered smart? Uh, should we have spent the rest of the podcast uh, answering that question? No, it's, I should. <laughs> we can if you allow it. I have to qualify it a little bit because that depends. Like, I guess all my answers should have that precursor. It depends. But in this case, it's really important to understand that there's a, a variety of things that you need to consider. And one of them is for sure the, the size of your company, of your organization, uh, which is kind of like correlated with the means that you have available. Do you have an IT department? Do you have like a research branch that you can can rely on, right? To r- run a bigger project like that. Uh, do you have one facility? Do you have 50 plants across the globe, right? Um, in which industry are you? Because all that kind of like it gives you an idea what is reasonable, what is feasible, and the time frame that it would time frame and cost that it takes to implement. Think of a, a global automotive supplier with like 50, 50 factories across the globe supplying to Toyota, Mercedes, uh, Hyundai, you name it. Um, they they have probably pretty substantial IT already in place because they are connected to the to the OEM and they have to, otherwise they don't get the contract, right? So for them, um, there's a different, uh, a, a different threshold to add additional insights, uh, insights from, from the data, uh, by applying algorithms and so on. For a small company that has maybe, you know, a job shop around the corner of 50 people, right? A few machine tools, uh, local, local supply chains, um, more one of a kind specialized production, um, their machine tools might not be connected to a network. So in order to get data that they can analyze and get, get valuable insights from that have an, like an a reasonable ROI, um, is a, is a very different, different threshold. So, um, I'm not sure if I answered your questions, but, uh, like we always have to look at what's the objective, what do we want to get? What are pressing problems we want to solve? And that would be the mindset I would go into it. Say like, Hey, we always run late because this machine is the bottleneck. Well, focus the project on this machine. And, and that is also possible for smaller companies. We had recently, um, a, a great case study with a company here in, in West Virginia, small operation. Um, I think 200, 200 uh, employees producing containers for fuels, right? Gas, gas containers. 
and they always had trouble with a, um, a steam generator, and they needed the steam for their presses and, and the manufacturing equipment, right? And the steam generator normally runs 24-7 to keep the temperature that is needed. Um, but um, recently, they had issues with it shutting down randomly at, overnight, and in the morning at 7 o'clock when the first shift arrived, it was cold. But it takes two hours, uh, basically, to, to get it to temperature. So when the people arrived, they stood around for one and a half, two hours. Uh, that is not a uh, not a good idea and, and cost the company money. Um, so what they did, they uh, had a, a small project. I think their, um, their production planner did it himself. Um, they installed a small uh, single-port computer that had a, a communications module. And it basically just sent a message to the cell phone of the service department's head um, if there was a problem and the steam generator shut down. So he would go in two hours early, diagnose it, try to uh, like, like run it back up, and it was uh, operational when the shift arrived. Um, cost under $1,000, solved the problem. And but from my perspective, what the biggest impact was, it, it made the company aware that Industry 4.0 is not only for the big guys. It's not only for Toyota. It's not only for GE it can have really tangible impact on small operations as well when done right. We can now argue, is it Industry 4.0 when you install a sensor and a communications module? I think, yes, in this case it is, because it's the first step to um, having a, a productive use of data and connectivity in that space. Absolutely. That's a really interesting example. So I'm envisioning a smart manufacturing plant to be one that has sensors, area, technologies that collect the data, someone software or ai or 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 an individual can analyze to understand where they got weaknesses in the processes and they're using that data in order to create to re-engineer how the manufacturing process works so they can become smarter faster more efficient uh, and and those types of, is that is that a kind of layperson's way of describing what a what a manufacturing a smart manufacturing plant would really be like that that is one application, I would say. Um, but but I think um, there's a, a variety of different ways of of using the technologies that you discussed, like sensors and analytics, which are the core components. Like when we think of the the core principle of smart manufacturing, I would really say that comes down to three things: connectivity. You need to connect the sensors to a network to have that exchange of of data. Uh, virtualization, we somehow have to get the physical, what's happening in the physical world into the virtual world, uh, but just basically having a sensor and collecting data. And then you use the data, like analyze the data, have productive, actionable items coming from that data stream, because otherwise it's just sunk costs. Like you just incur cost of storage, uh, maintaining when you don't use the data, it's, it's useless. So. But, but that is just the, the, the underlying fabric that you need. And then, then it comes to the objectives, what you want to achieve. What you described, yeah, processes, improving processes, making them more efficient, finding bottlenecks is definitely a use of, um, of smart manufacturing on the shop floor. But there's other, I would say, well, now I have to be careful, but more low hanging fruits or more, more mature applications that are easier to implement on smaller scale. And that includes for sure quality inspection. Um, like with vision systems now being very mature, like uh, fault detection and stuff like that, you can you can install that uh, and replace you know montaneous, montaneous um, work for 
for humans, right? Nobody wants to stare at a at a desk and look at individual parts for eight hours a day. It's very really tiresome, but humans should do more creative things. Um, and then predictive maintenance is also really, really uh, mature nowadays with toolware or um, faulty machines like rotating tool, uh, machine tool components, uh, bearings. Uh, we have really good data sets on that and, and can predict when machines will fail or need maintenance uh, well in advance, which really helps schedule them and re- reduce downturn. And with this data, with this software, presumably artificial intelligence is now becoming more utilized in order to help get the insights, help make better decisions. I think that kind of the, the general idea of artificial intelligence has been informed by ChatGPT. As I'm assuming that the artificial intelligence that's used in smart manufacturing plants is not that it's something different. So, can you give us a an idea of how AI is being used in these in these plants? Yes, um, and and you're right. Like ChatGPT, of course, has brought it. Yeah, new fame to AI, I would say, and it's it's really impressive. But it also has a, a few very big, big red uh, red flags when you want to use it on a manufacturing application. Not saying that will not happen, but there needs to be some more um, some more investigation before that can be done in a safe and productive way. So, nevertheless, uh, AI and and machine learning are core core components of the data utilization principle that I mentioned. Um, and are widely used. Um, I, I want to make sure to distinguish between AI, which I, I understand is more general AI, more like ChatGPT, like a, you know, universal thing that uh, replicates how humans interact with things. And then the specific AI, which is very task or, or purpose driven, right? And oftentimes I refer to that as machine learning, um, which is a, you know, often interchangeable, but I think it's more purpose driven. Um, and machine learning is, is, very um, mature in, in manufacturing, I would say, especially supervised machine learning, because we have the luxury of having a teacher. We have data and we know if a part is good or bad, right? Because we have criteria to do so. We know if a process is, is functioning uh, appropriately. We have subject matter experts uh, on hand that can help us to, to provide the labels for the data and make sure that uh, that our model is trained, uh, trained correctly. So Again, like the, the very mature applications of machine learning are predictive maintenance. Um, there's a lot of work out there. And I think a lot of that has to do with, um, that it doesn't matter what you produce, your bearing is, is performing in a similar fashion, right? It, it rotates. It has a certain vibration, a certain frequency. So you get big data sets that are needed to train your algorithm to be reliable. Um, with other, um, other applications, you have the problem that you have tweaks in your manufacturing process. So the data sets are not the same, right? So you have to kind of like stitch them together and that, that is difficult. People are working on it. Federated learning and so on are, are promising, but it's not as, as simple as saying, Oh, we produce 10 million parts of this. We can produce the data. Uh, we can, we can use the data to train our model. And um, another caveat here for the use of machine learning in manufacturing is uh, the data sets are often um, not very balanced uh, when it comes to good and bad examples. Think of quality outcome. You want to say, hey, we want to predict if a part is good or bad. Very simple <coughs> in, in its thought, not simple in its execution. Um, because every producing facility will not survive very long when they produce 50% of bad parts. But that would be ideal to train the algorithm. So you have like 
I don't know, a, a failure rate of 0.5% of 1%. Um, and the algorithm, when it predicts every card is good, you have a, a accuracy of 99 point something percent, which is great, but it's useless because it just class, uh, classifies everything as good. Um, but you want to, to make sure that you identify the bad parts, right? So there are methods to do address that as well, but it is just one of the difficulties of, well, of using machine learning and manufacturing to it. So when I combine the technologies that enable smart manufacturing and then adding on machine learning on top of it, what quantum of improvements do manufacturers tend to see when they're deploying these technologies? Good question. And I think here um, you could use more more data on that um, <laughs> to, to really have examples of real-life examples. It's very difficult to measure before and after. Um, I have one that we worked at ourselves with a, with a company uh, in Indiana, Itamco, uh, who produces large-scale gears, right, for the mining industry, for defense, and so on. Um, we applied hyperdialytics to, to improve the grinding process of one of these one-meter diameter gears. Um, and we were able to reduce the energy consumption by 37% and the productivity, like throughput, uh, improve that by 41%, which is, which is substantial. Um, saved the company uh, roughly $100,000 just with this one part uh, per year and uh, allowed them to produce up to 200 parts more with, because the machine tools are in, in high demand. So this, this is really exciting. Um, and to qualify that, the company we work with is, uh, is probably one of the leading companies in that space in the U.S. and in the world. So they, they are really good at what they do. <coughs> and even in that facility, we were able to achieve such uh, such outcomes, right? And so imagine a, a less uh, established company; uh, there might be even more, yeah, more savings to be to be achieved. Sorry to interrupt. Please give me thirty seconds of your time. You're halfway through this episode. If you're enjoying it, please rate and follow this podcast on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you so much. Now back to the episode. Okay, so how would you judge the maturity of manufacturers against this kind of spectrum? So I imagine that there's some extraordinarily advanced manufacturing units out there that are you know, considered leading edge, and then there's a typical manufacturing unit, and there's the laggards that kind of are doing it the way that was happening in the second or the third industrial revolution. So <laughs> where, where, where are we on the journey towards you know, a, an incredibly technology-enabled manufacturing industry, do you think? Not very far, um, and and that is that is a very provocative statement. But I think it's it's partially accurate uh, because we have to keep in mind that manufacturing is driven by small companies, small and medium sized companies. Right? I think ninety six, ninety eight percent, depending on on what how you look at it, um, of manufacturers are small companies. They're not the GEs and the Mercedes and so on, and a lot of them are struggling. We had a, a like one of my PhD students recently who graduated looking at maturity models for smart manufacturing with a focus on small companies because a lot of these models are focused on already rather mature uh, companies. So um, there tends to be a few leaders in that space that that are more mature than the others, but a big handicap is really the infrastructure, like having the ability to collect data, um, to organize data, uh, to analyze data. And doing that in an efficient way, that it it provides an ROI, because otherwise you spend tremendous amounts of manpower 
and and resources on on doing that, but you get very little in return. Right? So, um, but I think there's a few really good initiatives in the works because people have recognized that. Also, policymakers uh, in in Japan and South Korea and in the European Union in in the U.S. In the U.S., for example, SESME um, is trying to establish um, <clears throat> the smart manufacturing innovation platform that allows folks to publish uh, information models for certain machine tools and cut down that initial, you know, difficulty to connect to the machine tool and get the data out. Without that, you cannot do anything, uh, and therefore reduce the the effort by yeah, hopefully 80, 85 percent to to get started, and that that would be a game changer, Albert. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. So my experience, I, I, one of my responsibilities is I run the supply chain for a large uh, global company. And when when I or my team talk to our suppliers that tend to be manufacturers or their intermediaries between manufacturers, the conversation that we can, when we're trying to say, look, we're going to double our purchasing, but we need to halve the unit cost at the same time let's work together to make that happen. Sometimes that is a completely fruitless conversation and you're wasting your time completely. And other times people are just completely embracing it and delivering it and more. So I think from a practitioner's perspective, we see, I see massively varied experiences depending on quite often who is running the manufacturing unit, you know, what's the culture of the company and the extent to which they want to embrace the change. Um, but it does seem to me that this is a little bit of one of those situations where it's both a massive opportunity and a massive risk. So it's an opportunity if you move quickly and you start taking advantage through what can be probably incremental gains that can be revolutionary over time. Um, and it could be the death of your business if you don't do anything about it. <laughs> so so either, either way, you've kind of got a great opportunity or a terrible risk, whichever way you look at it, I think. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and also the variance. Um, I think that was kind of like what I tried to... Uh, to qualify at the beginning saying like, hey, it really depends on your industry, on on your size, on your resources. And resources does not just mean money, right? It also means, uh, and especially the, the human resource, right? Do you have somebody that that is willing to learn, that is willing to to take, you know, that, that uh, responsibility to, to engage and the risk, uh, the risk taking or risk willingness of the company? Which is which is a necessity because when you want to connect to a machine tool that you need for producing parts to fulfill your contract, for example, with your company, um, and you say no, we want to connect it to collect data. Well, when you connect it, there is a small but but considerable chance that you mess it up and this machine tool will not run for the next week. Um, and some companies just say that is too much of a risk. We, we, the return does not justify that. Absolutely. The, the tools that will make it easy. It's not black and play, right? I mean, Windows 95 advertised black and play and it didn't work. It doesn't work today neither. It doesn't. I was given the um, Elon Musk, Walter Isaacson um, kind of biography uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I don't know if you've heard of it. He's got this thing called an idiot index. Have you come across that? No, I did not. <laughs> it's a really great idea. So it's how he ended up building building rockets himself rather than buying rockets. So... The idea is to um, break down the thing that you're buying into its raw materials and work out what the cost of those raw, raw materials are. And your idiot index is the ratio between the cost that you're paying for the finished good and the cost of the raw materials. And he worked out that because he was going to buy rockets from the Russian government originally, uh, and he worked out that 
the idiot index was 50. So he was paying 50 times the cost of the raw materials than he was for the, for the rock, for the rocket itself. So then decided that actually there was a manufacturing process problem and probably a lot of profit, a lot of margin in there as well that could, could be solved if they did it themselves. Um, so I think anyone that's read that book will be adopting that index themselves. We certainly are in our, in our company. And I don't know what the answers will be, but I'm sure there's a few in there that will be looking at ourselves wondering why on earth we're paying a certain price for, for a particular product. It's a great concept though. Yeah, no, and, and I, I guess yeah, I, I was not aware of <laughs> the name, but the convention itself is a is is a very good question to ask. Like, I guess it's the make or buy decision in in a in a different package. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to switch to digital supply networks, which then takes the, which is connecting the manufacturing unit to the supply chain within it. Again, let's just get some definitions right. What is meant by? I mean, most people are thinking about supply chains in a, in a kind of barely traditional sense you manufacture it in a plant you pick it up you probably put it to some intermediary distribution warehouse and then it gets to its final destination through some other logistic path but could you just talk through what's meant by digital supply network and how it's different from a traditional supply chain yeah uh, so so yes it, it basically looks at the traditional supply chain and and recognizes that it's not just a linear you know transition from material in one direction and money in the other that's that's how we traditionally viewed it with a score model and and some other some other models. Uh, similar with information, you know, one play one one participant exchanges information with the next and and the next and so on. But there's no no interconnectivity. Um, of course, that's a very simplified view. When we look at automotive, for example, they have you know the bullwhip effect and they they connected their ERP system across the the supply chain, so it's already a network. But in principle, what digital supply networks um, bring to the table and, and changes that that perspective a little bit is that it transitions from that sequential supply chain process view to a network structure that is not built around the different suppliers, but around capabilities. So it's really focused on the customer. So fulfilling the customer's requirements and demands and, uh, and by embracing uh, disruptive digital technologies um, with a digital core at the center, that kind of like connects all the nodes of, of the network. So, um, however, now I mentioned technology as a core part, but it's not an implementation framework, so to speak, right? Technology is just part, uh, essential part of the whole, the whole idea, but it's not the idea itself, right? That centers around these capabilities. Can you bring it to life a little bit with, do you, can you think of examples or an, an example of a, way a digital supply network is being used? Well, I, I think um, <laughs> that is a tricky question because I think I cannot think of a company that fully embraced it, right? Because it's more of a visionary idea, I, I would say, but that still is not is not fully in, in, in place. Um, I think what really distinguishes leaders in that space from, from folks that might have some catching up to do is is that digital core? Like, do they collect data uh, from the whole supply network centrally? Have access to that, at least to the, the relevant information, um, for, uh, not just from the first tier supplier, but you know, all the way down to the chain and and from the different uh, different participants. I think that is the distinguishing factors and the really difficult factor because uh, data companies become increasingly aware that data is valuable. And uh, on the one hand side, 
So everybody wants data, especially the OEM. And, and you said you manage the digital, the supply chain of a bigger company. You probably want as much data from your suppliers as you can get. Um, on the other side, when you're a small supplier, um, what do you get for that? You have to collect that data, curate it, provide it, make sure that it's accurate. But it doesn't help you, right? It helps the OEM to, to fulfill their, their goals, their transparency and so on. But the only thing, and I'm playing devil's advocate here now, as a small company, what you get is you might be kicked out of the supply network when your metrics are not good enough. But do you get a bonus or a participation um, benefit um, when you provide correct data? So far, I'm not aware of, of any of that. It's more like do that, provide that. Um, but if you don't, then you get in trouble. But it's not if we, if the whole supply network performs better, we pay you more. <clears throat> so I think there's uh, some some discrepancy in, in motivation. Okay, so I'm going to get a bit of um, free consultancy here, if you don't mind. So <laughs> we, we, we don't have the notion of a digital supply network in place for the company that I work for. We are, we're one of the largest, if not the largest, buyers of office furniture in the world. Um, and um, among other things, we buy huge amounts of walls and doors that go into offices and carpet tiles and air conditioning units and all these things that make up a workspace. So... We obviously have a very distributed supply chain because we're in 120 countries. That makes it difficult to to get a single supplier for anything because um, you always have a local. And that's all, mostly not a good idea to have just one supplier. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we, we don't do that strategically. And even if we wanted to, we couldn't. Uh, it just wouldn't be possible. So how would you advise going about starting the journey of building a digital supply network? To a company that's, I, I would say that the company that I work for you know, is, is pretty typical uh, of, of companies today. Well, um, yes, that, that, uh, like the first step I would do, like looking at the processes that you have in place now, like how do you get information? Do you basically send an order out to your first tier supplier and they manage whatever they have to do without your knowledge? Um like just reassessing how it's done today, basically mapping out how your supply chain, how your communication, especially how your data collection works today. And then don't just think of, okay, how can we make that digital faster, speedier, um, more extensive, but, but rethink how could we do that differently? Or how would we do that if we design it from scratch? Um, now that we have these tools available, because one big pitfall is that we digitize our current processes, right? But our processes today were designed before we had these tools available and in mind. So just digitizing it might not be the best idea. It might actually be counterproductive, right? You might add complexity to something that, that doesn't need it, right? And not everything needs to be, be changed, right? But looking at that critically, I think that's uh, the initial step. Um, then in a, in a context like yours, what are the, the, the biggest pain points, right? Do you have certain, like, Issues with delivery times or so that, that come regularly, a certain harbor, a certain, you know, country that the uh, suppliers in a certain country that, that face quality issues or so. And then I would start there, uh, with expansion in mind. Say that, okay, we want to focus on quality. We do this as a pilot, pilot project, uh, but with extensibility, like not building it one of a kind saying like, okay, you sent the data to me in that format, but think, okay, can you, basically upload the data automatically here to this database and you access it with that one supplier and and um, building out that that uh, capability and skill within your your team 
Um, if it works, great. You can expand to the next and the next and next um, with a long-term vision to uh, to expand that to your whole supply network if necessary, if the process needs it, right? Um, but um, that would be how I would uh, that would be how I would go about that. And and how do we know if it was working? What types of metrics yeah. would we look to? Yeah, um, that again depends on what the pain point is, right? Is it uh, delivery time? Is it is it uh, quality uh, like like scrap rate or, or uh, broken parts or so? Uh, is it uh, is it reliability? Uh, what what are the, the the pain points? And then define KPIs that um, that that are aligned with that, right? Um, keep the time frame in mind. Um, implementing something like that does not go overnight, right? So you need you need to collect a certain amount of data to be able to um, uh, to verify change in KPIs, right? Over a, a few few months, I don't know what the supply chain uh, turnaround is in your case, um, and then um, and then define it like that. But yes, measuring uh, impact is is really important to to adjust because probably the first project will not get it right. Probably all the second, or the third, or the fourth. This sounds like a complicated, <laughs> a complicated. But but a certain early win is important. So picking a low hanging fruit is is good for motivation and learning. And where's the drive for digital supply networks? Is it from companies? Is it from supply chain directors? You know, typical person that I'd have in, in in my team, or are the manufacturers or the logistics companies also engaging in the debate? How, where where do you see it happening? You know, who's driving it and who's Who's really got the the kind of the incentives to make it work? Well, um, when we when we wrote the book, we wrote it uh, with practitioners in mind, and uh, two of the authors actually are or back in the, were, were from Deloitte um, in the supply chain branch. Um, so it was it was driven by by industry industry demand. Um, the uh, like the transition from the score model to the to the digital supply network. Uh, if you is uh, is driven by that that um, industry industry organization, so we basically summarize that up in a in a book form to provide it to to practitioners. Even so, now in in the academia, we also use the book as a as a textbook, but it was not written as a textbook; it was written as a as a book for practitioners. Okay, and what and plug your book? What's what's the name of your book again, please? Oh, digital supply networks. There you go. <laughs> You're gonna you're gonna rank high on SEO for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, coming back to to your question, I think it's driven predominantly from from the supply chain, supply network uh, side of things. But in the book, my 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 background is in manufacturing, so that's why I was I was part of the author team to bring that perspective in. Um, it it has a lot of components that that are driven from manufacturing because. They have to provision the data. They have to be integrated, and I think that's the the, the view that we have to be mindful of. That um, it's not that I mean a, a supplier is just you know uh, an entity where stuff comes out and and money goes in. It's they produce a ton of data, right? Does the the OEM or the supply chain coordinate supply network coordinator need all that data? Well, probably not, but. They need to be aware what data is there, how it can be aggregated, what is valuable to the to the system level perspective, right? And uh, and there's um, I, I assume in in many cases there is a disconnect uh, because manufacturing is still often perceived as okay, well, when can you deliver it? What quality? That's what is important. The rest, you know, that's your problem, right? Make it five percent cheaper, and and we're good. 
But I think, um, or my perspective is, and with a digital supply network, when we look at these capabilities, smart factory is one of the core capabilities because it can provide a much richer picture of data that can give you advanced notice. There might be quality problems in the future. There might be a delay because the machine is down, right? You know that. But the data right now is not is not exchanged. And if it's exchanged, is it really used in a dashboard or, or to inform uh, any action um, at this point? Uh, in most cases, it's not. Um, and then how the human element, how is it incentivized to share that data? Because when the only effect of sharing transparent data that your machine has problems is that they source it from your competitor, you're better off not sharing that information and pray that you can fulfill the contract, right? Because there is no incentive to be transparent, which is not good for the overall supply chain, but for, for the individual participant, it might be the right choice given the incentive instrument. So that's not my my <laughs> my area. This there's more from more social social side perspective, but I see that effect a lot uh, because it it hinders innovation and the technologies. Absolutely, it's, it's quite interesting because when when we just reflect on the conversations that we've had so far here, the skill set of the people in manufacturing of the people that are procurement managers or supply chain managers is going to be or needs to be dramatically different to what we've experienced in the past. So, you know, tech savvy, data analytical orientated, in addition to the things that they can already do. Yeah. It's not this isn't kind of substitution or this is incremental additional additional work. Do you do you see um do you see developments for people that are in those types of roles? Uh are you seeing an increase in the types of training courses or accreditations available that's enabling this shift? Is the uptake good? Because I would worry about a skill deficit uh, yes, to really so unlock I mean, the, the opportunity that you're talking about. Yes, uh, I think that is that is one of the most pressing problems in in the, that manufacturing is is aware of. Um, there are now initiatives left and right that try to address that to some extent. Um, if you want to check out the World Manufacturing Foundation um, report, I think two years ago there was skills for manufacturing was a big, the big yearly topic of that um, of that event. But when we look at uh, here in the U.S., for example, there is multiple initiatives that look at micro credentialing, certifications, uh, and and credentials similar to you know AWS or Microsoft Azure. Uh, they have credentials saying like, oh, you're a certified cloud architect or so. In manufacturing so far, that doesn't exist for smart manufacturing. But there's, there's work being done and, uh, and soon we should see some initial certifications where there's an accreditation body, so to speak, or somebody that, that serves as that, like Society of Manufacturing Engineers or SESME that lends their, um, their name to it to make sure that it's not just a random course, but a course that delivers content that is necessary. Um, we, uh, we we recently ran a study here in West Virginia. Uh, my colleague Todd Hamrick uh, talked to a couple of smaller companies, right, to see like what do you guys need. And it was really interesting because they said they don't care about who's accredited or not. They just was a we need people that know project management, that know it was more softer skills, um, which was interesting because they said yeah the hard skills they know they can machine they can or use the machine tool, but um, the the Digital savviness, um, uh, how to read data, how to to work with these digital tools, 
um, these are definitely um, uh, on the on the needs list, but they are not sure yet how to access it. I think like so. There's a a big question mark. Um, people try to fill that void, but um, we will see how how that is filled. If it's you know for AWS, it's like we get that certification because there is AWS, right? In manufacturing, there's different industries, different machine tools, different yeah. Again, a, a, a big diversity. So it's difficult to really provide uh, one size fits all to everybody. So um, I think we will see a lot of micro credentials, um, and we will see how that is accepted in the in the workforce. Yeah, it's important that gets addressed. Otherwise, you won't make much progress. Uh, and on the, but I, I would say there's two things. Uh, one is of course uh, the upskilling, which is uh, a major undertaking and and definitely necessary. As an academic and an educator, of course, I, I am fully behind that. But on the other side, I think there's uh, a need for the tools, not just uh, digital tools, but also the machine tools and, and the tools you use on the shop floor um, to upgrade their UI and UX, right? Like make it easier to use them. Because sometimes they're overly complicated. Uh, so you need extra training to use just the interface of a machine because it's not intuitive like a, a new cell phone is right that your three-year-old can use it. um and i know that machine tool manufacturers are working on that to see can we use something like alexa on a machine tool right to ask the machine are you running at good condition what's the feed rate and you don't have to click through five different menus on a windows ce interface that is that is not very responsive so i think there's multiple factors that have to come together okay that's clear i want to change topics a little bit. I saw that you literally just had some research published on uh, servitization in manufacturing, where you looked, I think, at seven companies of different sizes to see the extent to which they had adopted that model. Um, it'd be great if we could just spend a bit of time just going through the research that you did and what you found. But can we start by just explaining what is servitization in manufacturing and then, and then go into the research? Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, that, that's a topic I've been engaged with uh, for, for quite a while um, since my PhD, basically, uh, because in Europe, it seems like servitization is a much bigger topic uh, on the research side and the, and the company side, especially in, in the Nordic countries. Scandinavia is, is pretty strong, but also Italy, uh, Italy and Switzerland. Um, in servitization, basically, the premise is to decouple uh, consumption from production. So that, that is my view. Basically saying, <clears throat> can we Netflix a machine tool, right? <laughs> so you don't have to buy the machine tool, you buy the, the production capability itself. Um, and in manufacturing, um, that has like Netflix, I'm, I'm on the fence because I'm really annoyed when they take off movies that I want to see, right? Cause you don't own them, they can do whatever they want and uh, they jack up the prices all the time. In, in a business to business environment, that's a little bit different. The contracts are much, much better and everybody reads them. Um, so there are some really, really, um, promising, uh, aspects to that in my view. Um, machine tools get more uh, complex and expensive. Um, on the one hand side, that's a, a problem or tricky for the, the person that wants to purchase that or the company that wants to purchase that because they need to train their, their operators. They need to train their maintenance folk. They have to uh, sign that service contract and so on and so forth. On the other side, the machine tool manufacturer with such a complex machine tool, they have to manage their risk as well, right? When it's misused, it breaks. Who's responsible? Like the company will not be happy, 
but uh, there's little they can do when they don't own that that piece of equipment. So in a in a servitized con a servitized context, for example, the machine tool would still be owned by the manufacturer of that machine tool. They provision you know the training, the materials, the the oversight, the, the connectivity. So they have connectivity to that system and can monitor it remotely um, and collect data. Um, while the the facility that that uses it for production has a, a always up and running machine tool that's well maintained, and they pay a monthly, yearly, whatever fee um, to have that, which the CFO probably likes a lot because they know exactly what it will cost. Um, the kicker, and that's that's my personal bias, is that the access to the data, because so far a lot of machine tool manufacturers, once they deliver the machine tool. They, they don't see it again unless there's a problem, right? Um, so they, they don't know what, how it exactly is it used, um, and, and, um, where it is performing well, where it is not performing well. Having access to production data, not competitive data per se, like G code or so, but vibration data, uh, uptime energy consumption, these types of data points are really important to, to optimize the, the usage, maybe even upsell, say, Hey, you're using it that way. If you use, this system, it will, it seems to better fit your needs. Um, but also next generation development saying like, Hey, we see that this, this actuator is, uh, is not performing well in the next generation. We should replace that with XYZ, right? Um, which so far has not, has not been possible. Okay. Very good. And the seven companies that you had a look at in the, that you reviewed in the research, can you just give us some insights in, into one or two of the most interesting things that you found? Um, well, I, I think the, the most in, in that, just to, to put it into context, in, in that paper, we looked at upgradable, um, capital equipment, right? Like bigger, bigger systems and how that can be used in the, in the future to, to upgrade it, basically make it, make it better, um, and, and not just, uh, maintain the status quo. Um, I think I, I'd like to go back to a previous paper that we had because that example, I think is, uh, is, is really neat. Um, or two examples that we use there. Um, one is a B-52 bomber, um, which, uh, was introduced, you know, last, uh, last century, right? Uh, should have been or well, was projected to be, uh, phased out, I think, uh, in the nineties of, of the last century. Uh, and it's still flying and it's projected to fly until the 2050 or 2070 now, right? And it's not the same plane anymore because now it's basically a flying computer system, right? Uh, and that was not anticipated. So it costs a lot of money to do that. Um, and, um, but, but it, it, it's a more capable plane now than it was in inception. Um, the new Navy vessels, for example, they actually reserve, I think, 20% of space for unknown purpose in the future, uh, to, to facilitate future upgrades, which is, which is very smart. Um, so that is, that is in the, in the military space where, where they learned a hard lesson there. Um, on the on the business to business side, uh, we had a case study on on uh, turbines for for energy generation, where the servitized business model also allowed the company to to upgrade the system regularly. I think it was every seven years, which is two years faster than competition could produce parts for that system. So basically, you you outpace competition, so they're shut out. Uh, you have a very tight relationship with your customer. Uh, or user of your system because you literally know how they use the system every hour, every minute of, of the day. 
and you know exactly what they need and you can target uh, or, or, or um, um, yeah, target your offering directly to their needs, which is, which is of course an insight a, compet- a competitor doesn't have. So these are uh, two of the, the main promises of, uh, or that servitization can deliver and upgradability for capital equipment in, in particular. Which is really important because you're spending a huge amount of money getting the equipment in the first place. You want it to last as long as you possibly can. Yeah, it's not an iPhone where you say, oh, I want a new turbine because it, it's titanium now. You want a well-performing asset, and when you don't have trouble with it, that's a good asset, right? Because that's what it's supposed to do. Absolutely. And Thor, this has been a really interesting conversation, so thank you so much for taking the, the time to do it. Is there any topic that we haven't covered that you think would be worthwhile covering or any final message for our listeners that you'd, you'd like to leave as a takeaway? Well, I, I think one, one topic that covers all or sums up all what we discussed is um, how manufacturing and supply chain, supply networks uh, are so much in the center of attention. I hope that's not just my personal bias, but when you look at New York Times and, and the, the newspapers, um, in one form or another, there's always like topics around manufacturing supply chain uh, covered, which is which is uh, great in my opinion because it needs to be more at the center stage, uh, addressing the skills gap on one on the one hand side because we need uh, talented young people not to just become TikTok generators, but uh, but going into into these these industries right and they're they're very fulfilling. Uh, manufacturing in particular, um, you see at the end of the day what what your work comes to because you have a physical thing that you can can hold and touch and and use, um, and and also looking at the world as it is today because a pandemic with a global conflict and all, um, we need to to bring manufacturing back, and that is true for the U.S., that is true for the U.K., that is true for European Commission for every country basically. You have to have that that industrial base. Uh, to be able to to produce your own medication, uh, vaccines, essential goods, right? And we realized maybe our globalized supply networks have begun uh, began a little bit out of control. Um, so bringing back uh, essential capabilities to closer to home is 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 very important. Um, I'm part of uh, a newly established institute, the so-called Knudsen Institute. Um, that is dedicated to enhance the search capacity of the U.S. defense industry industrial base uh, through applied research, right? Because um, the arsenal of democracy really must embrace Industry 4.0 to deliver in the 21st century. Um, today, it probably is not capable of doing so, which we see in, in the, uh, the war in Ukraine consumes a lot of uh, a lot of defense material and. Uh, we're not the best is not not at production capacity as it was like 20 30 years ago and um that is that is concerning and you think about that um so uh yeah if you want to check that out that's uh, searchtheory.org um it's a newly established institute uh as a supply chain professional that's probably interesting to you as well um and then another message that is more for the practitioner but probably especially for students and academics, um, don't fall in love with tools and technology. Uh, the data that you have and the objective that you want to achieve, uh, they must dictate the tools and methods uh, that might be not the most exciting, but the most effective. Sometimes uh, the simple tools are better than the deep learning algorithm that is really exciting and fancy. Um, 
yeah, I think that's that's basically it. Very clear. Thank you. I feel like this has been a mini masterclass in smart manufacturing. So genuinely appreciate you taking the time to do it. I, for one, will be asking my team to buy your book. Oh, what? And, to, and, I, and I may even give them a preview of this before I publish it so they can get on and start thinking about how to create a digital supply network for our business. Wonderful. So, Professor Thorsten Boost, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please follow us on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you again. Hope to see you next time.